there, and welcome to a bonus episode of Even If. We are taking a break from our regular episodes this month and answering all the questions you submitted and you asked some good ones. So we are talking Imogen's birth story, stillbirth and what that means, and our grief journey over the past year. Thanks so much for listening in. Well, we are back this week with our second bonus Q&A episode. And Peter is here with me again. I'm back. You get to hear more from Peter. (laughs) (laughs) And last episode, if you listened in, we were talking all about Imogen's birth story. We answered your questions about what happened when she was born, what our labor looked like, and the time we got to spend with her after she was born, which we did get to spend a good bit of time with her, which I didn't know beforehand that we would. And we talked about the circumstances that led up to her death. And this week, we are answering your questions about grief. We're talking about how we've grieved differently, how it's impacted our marriage, and how that's just just changed us and changed our relationship. And I'm really excited that you get to hear from Peter this week because so many times I hear from people who are walking through pregnancy loss, infant loss, child loss in some way, and they all say the same thing that they just don't get to hear from the men very often. Seems like the women are a lot more vocal about their experiences. And I think people just are are watching them more. Mm -hmm. They're allowed maybe to express their grief a little bit more. So you get to hear from Peter this week. I promise I'll let him talk a little more than I did last time. So these questions were all submitted by you. I threw up a request on Instagram and you all just submitted so many questions So I've chosen the most common ones that came up repeatedly for us to answer today. And we'll start out with just some of the more fun questions. Uh, First one is, what are your top two memories together pre-birth? So during pregnancy. Okay. I'm going to think of mine. Do you know yours? Yeah. I mean, I could jump right in with mine. I, I would say... And it's kind of... I guess it's a repeated thing. But when we were pregnant, there were a lot of moments that I would just sit with Kelly and sing to Imogen Mm -hmm. and she'd move around and kick and be playful in those moments. And so those just became a really intimate time to connect with her. I think as fathers, we're not carrying the baby, so we don't have the moment by moment experience. So anytime that you have an interaction in that way, I think it's just a really, really special thing. Yeah. What about you, Kelly? Yeah, I loved the moments Peter got to spend with Imogen. He was traveling some throughout our pregnancy. And so for a while, I was like constantly sending him videos when I could see her kicking uh, so that he could experience it that way. But then when he was home and got to actually see it and feel it and interact with her. And when I could tell that, you know, she was she was responding to him, I think was just really sweet that Yes, we know that the moms have this bond while they're pregnant, but to really see that bond with Peter and Imogen was sweet too. Yeah, the responsiveness was just really beautiful. Yeah. So I think my favorite memories were the times that I was traveling. I traveled. Imogen went on, what was it, like 19 flights or something. She went on like 19 states. Yeah, 13 states, 19 flights. She traveled a lot. And a lot of times that was with Peter and I together. But I took several trips alone because I was speaking for various things. And I just remember 
being very aware when I was speaking on stage or when I was in a room full of people who are singing and worshiping and just had this real sense that she got to experience all of that before she was even born. And I just, I felt like we were sowing things into her that, you know, she was with me when I was communicating these truths. I spoke for a youth retreat in February before she was born. And I spoke about Psalm 139, talks about how we're fearfully and wonderfully made and that God knit us together in our mother's womb. And so I just had a really hyper awareness of the fact that she was absorbing these truths even before she was born. And now looking back and realizing that that was the extent of her life here on earth, it makes it even more sweet to know that she spent it hearing truths about who she was and who God was and how much we loved her. We took her to Disney World. Got to go to Colorado. Idaho. North Carolina. She spent time on the coast. Mm -hmm. She went up north with us to Cleveland mm -hmm. in the winter months. Yeah. So she she was well, well traveled even before she was born. Okay. what Who did Imogen look more like? Let's see if we can agree. On the count of three. On the count of three. We'll say it on the count of three. Okay. We're going to say it. Ready? One, two, three. Me. Kelly. <laughs> I think she was a good mix. Yeah. She had my lips. She did have your lips. And I think she had my nose. That's fair. I think she she was very long. Like she was she was, she was a very long bodied individual. Um and I kind of tend to be a little lankier than you. Yeah. She definitely, yeah, she had your height and your ears, mm -hmm. your eyes. It's hard to say for sure, but I think she was a good mix. Okay, what are the similarities and differences in how you and your husband experience grief? Here we go. Here are the big ones. Peter, what were some of the ways you experienced grief? So I think, and I may be taking us to a wrong, the wrong place, <laughs> but... I think one of the things Kelly and I did early on in our grief process was we spent time talking about healthy places and unhealthy places where we knew we went mm. in stress, in anxiety, in loneliness, whatever, whatever those feelings may be that we've experienced in our life. What are the, what are the flags on the play that you might need to throw mm -hmm. or what might be a flag to somebody else that might say, Hey, I need to pay a little more attention to this. Mm -hmm. And so I would say in our grief process, I think that being kind of this grounding place. And I think some of that speaks to like how we care for each other is this mm -hmm. place of open communication about uh, how can we care for each other? Grief for me, especially in the early days was occupying myself. Mm -hmm. I found little projects and tinkering things that pulled me away from being in the house all the time mm -hmm. and being out in the community. Let me feel like there was life beyond this. Yeah. That was definitely not the direction you headed. Yeah. Yeah. Peter needed things to occupy his time and, and things to do and, and wanted some of the distraction of, people and places and things. And I very much turned, like, I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to leave the corner of the couch. She was a turtle. <laughs> I, yeah. She didn't want to leave her shell. 
And I think there were a few, some of those were just really obvious reasons. Like I had just delivered a baby. So I was dealing with all the physical healing from that. In addition to the hormones and emotions that just go along with delivering a baby, plus the grief of losing a baby, plus all of the, you know, changes to my body. And the fact that when I went out in public, I was risking people asking me, when are you due? Which happened. Yeah. You know, a month after I delivered Imogen, we were at Target and a woman really well-meaning, but she just, she started asking when I was due and I was completely caught off guard and didn't know how to respond in the moment. And so the more awkward I got, the more insistent she got because she was trying to explain herself and man, it turned into a leave the carton flee moment. So part of my desire to be home was just emotionally. I needed, I needed that space. Part of it was that I was risking triggers every time I left the house and I had no idea where they were going to come from. Some of them were people asking, saying, doing things. Some of it was just the stimulation. Overwhelming environments. Yeah. So we definitely did have to, I think, learn how to care for each other and how to realize Peter could not sit at home staring at the wall for days and weeks at a time. And I really couldn't do much else. Yeah. So eventually we learned, eventually we got to the place where Peter could be working outside. That was kind of step one. Yeah. (laughs) You could work in the garage. I could go work in the garage and Kelly would be okay inside. Yeah. Knowing that he was right there, I could get to him if I needed him. And then he could kind of go on a little bit longer trips, run errands, and someone would come stay with me. It was a while before I could be by myself. And and we really did have uh, great support of our close friends that stepped in in those moments Mm -hmm. of like, hey, I really need to be away from the house for hours today. Can you just come sit at the kitchen table and work from the kitchen table Mm -hmm. and be in the house with Kelly? Mm -hmm. You guys may not say anything to each other, but we just need somebody there. Yeah. Um, And so community was really critical in in those first few months. Yeah, I think us realizing what our own needs were, identifying what those were, understanding what each other's needs were, and learning how to say, okay, this is how we can compromise and care for each other, but still make sure our own grief needs are met. Being met. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in some sense of like trying to get some things back to normalcy, Mm -hmm. even like five months later, four months later going, all right, we're going to do a date night. Let's get dressed. Let's go. And like before we're out of the house, Kelly was having a hard time with it or we'd show up to the restaurant and we'd be waiting for our table and we'd turn around and go home. Yeah. Um, and just being okay with that, being okay with the fact that we are processing through things and people around us don't get it and don't (laughs) need to get it, but taking those baby steps together. Yeah. Yeah. And just at some point realizing it's okay if you leave the cart and flee the store, it's okay if you order and then I go to the car and Peter has them pack it up and to take it to, for takeout. Yeah. <laughs> like some of those things are just, they're okay. Cause they have to be. 
And some of those things you screw up from time to time. <laughs> Even like eight months later, from time to time, you still can mess up a moment. So one of the things I read really early on was that the men oftentimes suppress their grief for a year before they really start processing it, which is sure, you know, of course, that's not 100% across the board, but that oftentimes the dads are so focused on taking care of their wives and making sure she's okay. And it's a while, it's only when they realize, okay, I think she's going to make it that they can start to process their own grief. Did you feel that at all? I, yeah, I would definitely say, I don't think it is suppression as much as it is survival. You Mm -hmm. are taking care of somebody else and you just don't have the bandwidth to deal with your own stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think my grief continues to catch me in private moments or moments away. There's been a lot of moments this year that I would say it hits me and I find myself going and finding a corner mm-hmm. to process it. I am processing my grief on my own, but then also it's been a very busy year of just caring for you and your grief mm-hmm. and kind of how we how we do that. I think I've processed a lot of my grief. There are still things that will trigger me. But I believe that there will still be things that trigger me for a long time. So that's not to say that things aren't better than they were. Yeah. I think that from the beginning, people asked me a lot more about Imogen and gave me opportunities to share. And maybe they gave us opportunities and I just took them. (laughs) Because for me, talking about her was, I had to talk about her. There were weeks and months after she died that I could not make it through a conversation with someone without talking about her. It felt like there wasn't a, there wasn't a conscious thought that she'd be forgotten, but I think there was the subconscious thing inside of me that was like, we should be talking about her because she should be here. She should be affecting every area of our lives. And so if she's not at the very least, she's affecting every area of my mind. And I don't know if you got as much space to answer questions and talk about her. And Yeah, I mean, I think there's this place even in pregnancy where the doctor talks to you, not to me, mm-hmm. where friends are asking questions about you and they want to be close to you, but they're not asking about how the guy is, pro- mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's true in a lot of couples going through a pregnancy Mm -hmm. and that's just kind of extended into the grief that that people are you are the one that is physically healing and physically dealing with the uh, the chemical changes and the emotional changes that have all gone directly affecting your body and mass populace is more concerned about that than they are about the person standing with you in that yeah and so I don't feel forgotten, but there are definitely times, I think it was the holidays around Christmas, we went and visited some of Kelly's mentors and somebody asked me and like about how I was doing and I couldn't get a word out. Like just the emotion, the emotion of being put on the spot and feeling like somebody's asking me like, Not that nobody had asked, but that I probably have not had a lot to say when I have been asked. And so 
balancing all of that? Asking the right question or really just, you know, a question and giving people space where there's not this expectation that you're looking for a pat answer or um, a concise summary, but that really is this open-ended wherever you want to take this, I think is rare for people in grief. Yeah. And I think that's overwhelming. Sometimes like, it's hard like, even to like, know how to respond. Yeah. It's even hard to know how to respond in the like unending side of it. I was a terrible student when we got the, the project of like, write whatever you want to about this. I was like, tell me what subject and what portion of that subject you want me to write about, and I'll get you a paper. Give me parameters. <laughs> <laughs> How much are you prepared to deal with right now? And yeah, for sure. So people talk in grief about, you know, the the five stages. I think they've maybe added a sixth stage of grief now. Did you feel like you experienced stages of grief or was it all over the place? I mean, I think I look back and can probably lay out some stages of grief but there's i'm still in my grief it's a process and you kind of carry it with you i know for a while people were asking me you know have you have you allowed yourself to be angry and for me there was not like a stage of anger there were moments where i would kind of explode and there was just this like, I, I, could, I couldn't really identify it as anger because I wasn't sitting around thinking, I'm so angry. But I could tell my, by my reaction to things, by how I responded to things, that there was something inside of me that would just explode. Not in, I'm angry that my baby died, but in how dare they not have what I ordered off of the menu that they printed and gave me an expectation for. What do you mean I can't sit by the window? (laughs) I will sit by the window. window. Uh, Because, and that actually was the biggest, I think part of my, the way my grief has expressed itself is that if you set an expectation, I want it to be met. I think one of the triggers for me was in realizing that I did not have any control over Imogen's death. And there was a very clear expectation that we were going to go into labor. We were going to deliver a baby. We were going to take her home and we were going to raise this child. And so to have that choice and that control taken away from me, I think very much manifested anytime someone set an expectation. There's an open table by the window. (laughs) I should be able to sit in it or you know, this item is on the menu. You should have it in stock. I, I had a really hard time dealing with unmet expectations. Yeah. And so there came a moment. We both went to counseling early on, but after we hadn't been for a few months and I think there came a moment that Peter looked at me and was like, we need to do something. You just needed to sit with somebody and process through things. And it was really a point of you had kind of hit this wall of decisions were hard Mm. and every decision was hard and that was true a couple months after Mm -hmm. and it was true months months after and there's still moments of that but they're rare at this point and the the moment that 
it really was just, you have to walk through this. You have to start working through this with somebody else. Um, I can't carry everything right now, Mm. I think was part of that moment. Part of that moment was feeling like just helpless as a husband, feeling like there is nothing that I can do right now, nothing that I can say right now that helps or fixes or repairs or resolves whatever is going on inside of your head and your heart and caring for that. I think that is one of the places where our marriage was the most tested on one hand and strengthened at the same time in you feeling like you wanted to do everything to make it right for me and recognizing that there was nothing you could do to make this right. And I think for me, I was angry that no one in my life could make this right and angry that the people who had always fixed things for me that had always, you know, stepped in when I couldn't do it on my own, couldn't make this right. Right. And so I think it was in this, you feeling like you couldn't fulfill the role that you had always been able to fulfill and that, and I'm going, you're not fulfilling the role you've always been able to because you can't, but both of us having to, to process through our disappointment and expectations and yeah and I think there was I think there was freedom for me in that Mm -hmm. there was a certain point of me going I need you to go back and talk to somebody else so that I can work on myself Mm -hmm. over here in this corner (laughs) he Um, needed a break (laughs) and and there's nothing wrong with that but it's finding a place where it's okay to say that to each other Mm -hmm. and were you afraid to say that to me I think there was a lot of moments Kelly has lived in this control. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have control, so I don't want decisions made for me. Mm. And so I walk this line of making a decision and being wrong in the decision Mm. or not making a decision, Kelly, not being able to make a decision. Yeah. And then dealing with the fallout from that. Yeah. And so there was a lot of moments of me kind of sitting there going, until you tell me you're ready, I'm not going to push this. Yeah. And I think that's where I was with counseling. It was, I was, I probably would have maybe pulled that cord (laughs) even a month earlier than I did, but was really kind of waiting for a cue of like a self-recognition because some of the like would you reject it if you feel like you didn't make the decision to come here you didn't make the decision to participate in this and it being forced upon you um and kind of not allowing counseling to work yeah if anybody if you haven't been in counseling something you should know about counseling is counseling is about buy-in you have to decide that counseling is going to be part of your process and you and your counselor have to find a place of like we're gonna work through this together the the second week i met with my counselor i'm still meeting with the second week i met with her i started our session by saying 
how do we know when I'm done? And <laughs> I caught her off guard and she was, she said, what do you mean? And I said, how, how do we know when I'm done? When we've like dealt with this, we're done with this. She said, well, where's the checkbox? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, even when I started going to counseling, that's what I wanted. I wanted someone to sit down and say, this week, we're going to talk about this. Next week, we're going to talk about this. Third week is this. Here's the plan. After we talk about all these things, we'll be good to go. And of course, that's not what she did because there is no formula. There's no checklist. There's no, you know, 12 step plan that says, talk about these things, process these feelings, give it this much time and you're done. You're over it. And I think probably that's one of the best things I've gained from seeing a counselor is the ebb and flow of there. There's not a finish line. It's just accepting there's not a finish line. Yeah. This is going to take different forms throughout my life, but it's going to be present for the rest of my life. And so I am learning how to accept wherever I am in the moment and be kind to myself and gracious to myself. And at the same time, pursuing healing and wholeness and not just staying stuck but recognizing wherever I am today is okay. Yeah. It's not linear. It's not linear. And a big piece of it is turning into each other. I think that's been a crazy important part of our year. You, you can look at the stats of mm -hmm. marriages that survive a loss of a child mm -hmm. and they're pretty staggering. Mm -hmm. You have to decide whether you're turning into each other or whether you are sourcing everything you need outside of your marriage. Yeah. And that's not just true about losing a child. There's marriage advice for you. Three <laughs> Which years we in, don't give. Three but... <laughs> years in, we don't give marriage advice, but here's marriage advice. Turn in. It's And, and that's been, uh, we made that decision early on after losing Imogen in a conversation of, no matter what happens this year, no matter what happens in the next five years, we're going to continue to turn towards each other, not let things fester and not be unaware of ourselves or each other. Yeah. And several people asked how losing Imogen has impacted our marriage. There you go. <laughs> there it was. <laughs> there it was. I think it's put our marriage vows to the test in a way of saying, you you pledged this, you vowed this, you said this would be true for better or for worse in sickness and in health. And while I would never have chosen this story, I do think we can come out on the other side and say, we've walked through the fire. We've walked through worse. Not that it couldn't be worse, but we've walked through worse. We're still choosing each other. So our vows feel a lot less like words and a lot less like something printed on a piece of paper and a lot more like something that's forged on our hearts and written in stone in our lives. Okay, next question. What was the hardest first for you guys? First day back to work, first monthly anniversary, first holiday? I know mine hands down. Do you know yours? Probably, yeah. I'm going to go first. Go ahead. The hardest first, it really caught me off guard. I think the hardest first for me was Mother's Day. And that was almost a year after Imogen was born. 
So I was not anticipating that to be one of the hardest days. And Mother's Day this year, it I mean, it took me out. It took me out. Yeah. Like in bed. Hard. Hard, yeah. And I think it's because, this sounds very like selfish. I don't mean it that way. But I think it's because that is the day that someone else would be doing something for me. So it's the day I had the least control over planning, over deciding what happened. You know, Imogen's first birthday, I like, I went all out. Balloon arch. Yeah. I could make, I could make all the decisions about how we wanted to celebrate that day. But Mother's Day, Mother's Day was about me. And it was just really, really sad. I felt really out of place. Like there's, I didn't know this, but there's the Sunday before Mother's Day. They call it bereaved Mother's Day. And it's like supposed to be a special day for mothers who have lost children. And I was like, I don't want a special day. I don't want a different day. Like I want Mother's Day. And I want Mother's Day to be everything that I would have imagined and anticipated it would be. And what do you do? You know, do you have breakfast in bed? Do you like... For so many moms, Mother's Day, I know for probably for many moms, Mother's Day does not live up to the hype or the expectations either. But there was nothing different about that day for me. There was nothing that's like, oh, you can sleep in while dad takes care of the baby or, you know, so that was just unexpectedly, I think, the hardest first for me. Yeah, probably one of the hardest first for me was going back to work. I did my first day of work one month after we had Imogen. And so we, we were traveling, we were out of state. Kelly's in a hotel room. I'm up at yeah, five went, o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I went because I wasn't ready to stay home by myself. Yeah. I wanted, I still wanted to be close. Just the all in all of trying to be focused and be at work feeling a part of me feeling like I need to work. I need this, this involvement. I need to feel needed in this moment. And at the same time, having a lot of moments of like, I have to step away and go back to my hotel room just to be with Kelly for a little bit, Mm -hmm. like, and, and kind of balancing that. And I'm lucky. I have great clients and great friends that have supported me in those days. But that was definitely probably one of the hardest firsts after Imogen. One of the questions that came up a few times was in our journey of grief, what were some places that we really leaned into to find hope? Yeah. And ultimately for us, I think our hope has stemmed from who Jesus is and the finished work of the cross and in the promise of eternal life um, in heaven. Yeah. That's obviously where all of our hope has stemmed from the promise that we will be reunited with Imogen. And I think longing to be reunited with Imogen has taught me to long for Jesus in ways I've never truly longed for him before, because as much as I want to be reunited with Imogen, as much as I long for the day that I will see her face to face and touch her and hold her and hear her voice and all of those things that I I 
long for in the depths of my being, there are times that I do have to stop and ask myself, do I long for Jesus the same way? Because ultimately, he is the prize of heaven. Ultimately, he is the prize of eternal life. And Imogen is an incredible gift. And the fact that we're reunited with her is the kindest gift from him. But it has really caused me to long for Jesus. It's caused me to long for heaven and caused me to cultivate and stir up a longing for Jesus eternally. But then recognizing that I have access to Jesus here on earth? And am I taking advantage of that access that I have here? And I think this question might even have been asking something totally different in terms of like what resources have been helpful, but that ultimately is where my hope comes from. I think practically a few things. I started reading a lot about heaven. Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, has been a great resource. A book by Paul David Tripp called Suffering was one of the first that I read that just spoke to my heart this this grounded, true, biblical understanding of suffering has been foundational in walking through this season of grief. What about you? I've probably leaned more into music and places that just feed me, feed my soul, knowing that those are places of hope and places of joy and knowing that it's okay that those places are joyful. So Michelle was wondering kind of what do you anticipate year two to look like? What's, what's on the horizon as we look forward? I think there's this bittersweet tension to making it through the first year and entering the second year, because when you lose a child or really when you lose anyone, every day is one day farther away from them. And also one day closer to them. It's one day farther away from the last time you saw them here on earth, but it's one day closer to the day that you'll be reunited with them in heaven. Yeah. And so I think that it's just kind of bittersweet. There is definitely a relief in some ways to making it through some of the milestones and knowing you've gotten through the first. But I think there's also a sadness and there's also a fear that people will forget. There's a fear that... You can't talk as openly or as freely anymore because people start to think, well, you should be over it by now. Or you start to think you should be over it by now. And for us, I mean, that's not true. We're not over it. I don't think we'll ever be over it. And I think we want Imogen to be a part of our lives from here on out. That she's celebrated as a member of our family today, just as much as she was a year ago and as much as she will be 10 years from now. We hope. In a lot of ways, I think we've passed all these milestones and you kind of have what should be or could be the hardest days behind us at this point. I think year two is going to look different. We have a niece and a nephew who are weeks or months within Imogen's birthday. And so for the next lifetime we will watch them grow and so there's a grief journey that kind of tracks with that and mm -hmm. there's this ongoing flood of grief of yes we lost our daughter last year but we're losing other parts of our story or yeah. we're grieving other parts of our story 
And so I think this year will look different than we thought it would. I think we have spent more time recently looking at our future as it looks without Imogen in it. Mm -hmm. Not without her memory, Mm -hmm. not without her being a part of our family, but without her physically being here with Mm -hmm. us. And I think that starts to shape the story of grief in some ways of the things we had planned and had anticipated, those plans are now changing. Yeah. And so how we look forward into the future with a different understanding of what will be changes how we will approach year two, year three, year five, year 10 of this grief journey. Yeah. And that probably took us a year to be able to look into a future without her. The first year, I don't think we could even see into the future. It was just surviving. This was such a special conversation and I'm so excited to share it with you all because in case you couldn't tell from listening in, Peter has just been such a rock and he has loved and cared for me so well in this last year of our journey. And so I'm excited that you get to see that side of him. But I'm also glad that you get to hear from his perspective because it is uniquely his. And while we have walked the same road, we've experienced it differently. And I'm glad you get to hear his part of our story. If this has encouraged you in any way, we would love for you to share it with somebody who could benefit from hearing it. We don't share this story for ourselves. We share it because we believe that God is doing something through Imogen's life. And we believe that people need to be reminded that he is good and that our grief is real and finding that balance of trusting who he is, but also navigating the pain and the loss and the the sadness that we feel is so important. So feel free to share it, pass it along. We're so grateful to you for listening in and we'll be back here with the first episode of season two, just after Labor Day. 